And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. On November 3rd, I gave a presentation, evening presentation, to about 50 Bainbridgeites uh, to talk about IRAs and 401ks and investing, asset allocation, and all of those things that uh, I think are should be and very important to investors. I'm never able to take all of the questions, and this was no exception, but I did promise that I would, in fact, follow up do a podcast, answer those. There are 13 of them. Uh, and, uh, and, and then make sure that we got this out to the public here locally and, of course, to those of you who listen to uh, my regular podcasts. Now, I can tell you what the big question of the night was. The big question had to do with the implications of a Trump presidency. Now, remember, this was November 3rd. And so I'm going to leave that question till last. And so let me relatively quickly run through the, the first 12 so we can, we can get to the big one here. So let's first of all uh, know that a lot of my work is about selecting the right asset class. And one question that came up was, what is the best source of information on these asset classes? Uh, that's actually a fairly complex question. Well, it's a simple question, but it's a complex answer because uh, we we certainly have these very broad ways of defining uh, asset classes. For for example, you might say that uh, with small cap would typically be companies averaging somewhere between one to three billion dollars. Large cap could be over fifty billion dollars in terms of the the value of those companies in the open market. The number of shares times the price. Uh, that's the capitalization. So um, the best source for this information in terms of how big or small or how value-oriented, how growth-oriented, etc., is going to be Morningstar. Now, when I say that this is can get complex, that while Morningstar recommends small cap, in fact, they even identify small cap value. They have this. They have this what they call the style box. And within that style box, there are nine little squares. Each one represents a different value orientation as well as a different size orientation. So the small cap value would be lower left-hand corner. And there you would expect those companies to range again in size one to three billion. And... The value orientation, which is based, at least to a lot of people, based on the comparison of the price to the book value, with lower ratios suggesting more deeply discounted uh, value stocks, and theoretically, stocks that should do better in the long run, just as the smaller small are theoretically going to do better in the long run. So 
it's easy to say that small cap value could run from from let's say uh, a billion to three billion in terms of the this average size of company in the portfolio or this price to book ratio could be anywhere maybe from 1.8 down to 1 1 now that would be a very very deeply discounted uh, portfolio but let me just give you a couple of examples and why this uh, does become important to understand um, I happen to own dimensional funds, small cap value, uh, in my portfolio, our portfolio. And when I look at that fund, according to Morningstar, their average size company is about $1.47 billion. Now, if I look at the Vanguard small cap value fund that I recommend uh, on my website, uh, their fund, the average size company is about $3 billion, or twice as large. So I would almost call that a large small cap value uh, portfolio. And the, uh, the, the DFA fund has a book to uh, price to book of 1.17 versus 1.62 with Vanguard. Now, what that means is that it's almost a 50% um, or let's say a third more deeply discounted at DFA than Vanguard. So, it's sure it's great to know that something is a small cap value fund but to do the best that we can and make sure we understand what we own we want to look at the value orientation we want to look at the actual size and the great source the 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 main source for that information is morningstar.com Good news is Morningstar.com is free. Now, you can subscribe to, to premium services there, but for, I think, your purposes and mine, just the free service, it's just fine. Number two, I talk in my presentation about the implications of getting an 8% compound rate of return. In fact, the example I use is somebody putting away $5,000 a year for 40 years and getting an 8% return uh, and then retiring and living off their investment and taking out 4% a year. And I also compare that then to 8.5%. And the bottom line is that extra half a percent um, over a lifetime, by the way, this is a, a lifetime that is going to live till age 95, so that may not be my lifetime, but it is the lifetime in this, this set of assumptions. And the difference on that $5,000 a year over 40 years and then living off it for another 25 years at eight versus eight and a half percent is almost two million dollars. Now, where did the eight percent come from? Well, if I look at the history of stock returns, and I would see that they run ten to twelve percent, and if I look at bonds, they run four to five percent. 
So I just figured for this particular study that we're looking at what a target date fund might give over 40 years, a target date fund that starts basically almost all equities and eventually winds down to maybe being 50% uh, in equities or 40% in equities. But the, the bottom line is the 8% that I used as an example, I simply in essence, made up what would happen if you got 8% or if you got 8.5%. And of course, that extra half a percent could come from lower expenses, could come from, from more finely tuned access to asset classes, uh, could come because of lower taxation. I mean, there's a number of ways you could make that extra half a percent, but what this person really wants to know Okay, you've dangled that 8% out there. Is that really a reasonable assumption? And that's, that, of course, is a terrific question in that any of us who are planning for the future have to make some sort of an assumption because that would in some ways dictate how much we have to save. And if we don't think we're going to get a very good return and that we're going to need a certain amount of money, well, we better save more money if we can't get a decent return. But is that 8% legitimate? Well, looking back at the last 88, almost 89 years now, what we do see is the S&P 500 compounds at around almost 10%, the small cap value uh, compounds at, at over 13, close to 14, large cap value at about 11, small cap blend at a blend which is partly growth and partly value at about 12. So is it legitimate to be able to get a 10% return in the equity part of your portfolio? Well, remember over the last 88 years we've gone through wars and 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 depression and recessions and high inflation and low inflation and all sorts of uh, uh, critical times that it, that people felt like the sky was falling so is that is that possible in the future i don't know i i really don't know but i do know this interestingly enough that the UK, not a very, they're not a bunch of hot shots like uh, uh, in, in uh, a lot of the industries that the U.S. would probably be perceived as maybe more cutting edge, maybe not. But, but what I do know is the U.K. market has compounded at about the same rate of return over the last 50 plus years as the uh, U.S. market. So I, it's, I think it's possible. Uh, I would guess that if rates of return are lower, we would probably find that inflation uh, was lower over a period of time, and uh, that may lead to a very similar return if you if you look at after inflation returns. So, um, who knows? We cannot tell uh, the future. Number three. This is another question about the 8%. They wanted to confirm when I talked about getting an 8% return, uh, does that include 20% or more in cash? Well, I do have, as many of you know, these fine-tuning tables. 
um, or a fine-tuning table. There's a second one coming out in the coming month, I hope, uh, which reflects the work of an all-value uh, portfolio. But the traditional one that's a balance of big and small and value and growth, etc., um, that does show uh, that a portfolio uh, that was 50% in fixed income would have actually produced a, uh, a 9% compound rate of return after fees. So uh, would, would it be Pollyannish to think that a 50-50 portfolio would be able to get 9% in the future? It, it seems too high. In fact, when I was an investment advisor and had folks uh, that I was working with, I always recommended, and I think everybody pretty much agreed, that we take 2% off of what's happened over the last 46 years as a, as a base of, uh, of projections. But who knows whether with 20, in fact, with 20% in bonds over the last 46 years, uh, you would have made uh, much more than a 10% compound rate of return. So, as so often is the case, nobody can know the future. Number four, they have several different portfolios in their little preamble here. But what they're trying to figure out is what the benchmark should be. How should they try to compare? And in fact, they have, I think, three um, three different or two different uh, portfolios they're managing on their own. And they're trying to figure out what do they use as a benchmark. Now, obviously, if you had a portfolio that was 50-50 stocks and bonds, it wouldn't be appropriate to use as a benchmark the S&P 500, the market, the U.S. market, oftentimes is, is uh, seen as the S&P 500. That's the benchmark for U.S. equities. But if you had a half in bonds, that would not be a legitimate benchmark. And if you had the stock split between U.S. and international, certainly the S&P 500 wouldn't be the right benchmark. And if you had the portfolio split between large and small and value and growth and you had REITs and you had emerging markets and all of these different asset classes, you really, I don't think that you can use a standard benchmark. Now, obviously, the first and most important benchmark that we have to, to be able to hit or hopefully surpass would be the rate of return we need to get where we're trying to go over the long term. So no one year is going to be uh, an answer as to whether you're accomplishing that. You want to see that you're doing that over five or ten or more years. But people need these benchmarks. So here's what I would use. Uh, I We put out uh, a fine-tuning table uh, once a year. Try to get it out by February, March. And uh, we go back, this next one will go back 47 years. So I, I would think if at the end of 2016, your 50-50 strategy, and if your 50-50 stock bond strategy would uh, have some big and small and U.S. and international and, and then, of course, bonds, um, my thought would be that 
if you did as well or close to what our index strategy would do, I would think that would be a reasonable benchmark. But unfortunately, unless you have a very simple portfolio, like let's say something that looks like let's for all equity, 70% stocks, 30% uh, 70% U.S. stocks, and 30% international stocks, that would be a pretty easy thing to benchmark because you could look at a combination of the Vanguard total market index in the U.S. and a total market index internationally. That could be a relatively uh, a close benchmark to compare how you did. But you can see that there needs to be some fine-tuning and making sure you're benchmark is a realistic one because very often, very often, people will be very upset because their portfolio didn't do as well as the S&P 500. And of course, that's an easy thing to own. And 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 probably a third of the time, the S&P 500 is going to outproduce a more broadly diversified equity portfolio. But it's not a fair comparison uh, what is fair is if the S&P 500 for 20 years uh, beats the more broadly diversified portfolio, that might make a person question whether it was worth all that work to, to broadly diversify. But benchmarking, I hope, is more about meeting your own needs within your risk tolerance. Number five, do you read the prospectus? Uh, that the companies send you, and I'm, uh, I'm assuming they're talking about the prospectus from a mutual fund company. And uh, I don't, but remember, the funds that I recommend and that I invest in um, are basically index funds. What I do want to know is I want to know what the expenses are. I want to know what the turnover is. Uh, There's a lot of information that I'd like to know in trying to determine which one of these indexes is appropriate for me. And the best source, I think, is actually, rather than the prospectus, uh, is to take a shortcut and just use all of the endless information that is available at Morningstar. Number six. Uh, question here is about expenses. How do you determine the expenses of a fund? And then in parentheses, uh, they say like Vanguard, uh, and as well as a 401k, because as you probably all know, there are fees within a 401k above and beyond the fees within uh, of the investments inside the 401k. Now, most of the expenses, and, and, and let me just talk about what the operating expense of a mutual fund includes. It includes all of the administration, administrative expenses, the, the accounting, the legal work, uh, the management fees, um, uh, and um, in the case of a no-load fund, it's going to include uh, any marketing fees uh, that were paid because there, uh, there are no uh, outside marketing fees uh, besides what you see as the operating expense in a fund like Vanguard. 
Um, now, that is an easy one to, to find at Morningstar because it shows uh, a, the operating expense. What you will not see in the prospectus and you will not see at Morningstar is the internal cost of turnover, uh, buying and selling of securities. And in order to do that, you're going to have to uh, get what is called the statement of additional information uh, from uh, the mutual fund company for that particular fund. And that can be in some cases where there is a lot of buying and selling. Uh, those costs of commissions, uh, that, that's, what, that's what you're going to, to uh, that's the expense that you're going to occur, incur, is, uh, can be as much as 1% a year. So if you're in an actively managed fund, you might want to get a hold of that statement of additional information uh, to see what that cost has been. And even that cost does not include the spread between the bid and ask, which every time you buy, you're, you're buying and pushing the price up. And every time you sell, you're likely pushing the price down if you're trying to move a lot of stock. So it it's, uh, takes a little study to find all these expenses. But now your 401k, that's an important one because some 401k plans, number one, some companies pay those expenses. So in a sense, you can say it doesn't matter as long as they're willing to pay it. But uh, the, the, the regulations on the kinds of fees and expenses to run 401k plans uh, are getting tighter, tougher, and tougher. And uh, you just need to ask your HR department for information on all of the fees that you are paying inside of your 401k. By the way, I might mention that some, I mean, there's, there's the load fund, of course, uh, and that load is above and beyond the operating expense. And then there can also be what's called a 12B1 fee, which is an internal uh, marketing administrative fee that will be broken out uh, separately. So um, um, worth just just go through the, the process once to see if you can make a list of the operating expense, the 12B1 fee, the, uh, uh, the cost of turnover, buying and selling, uh, and, um, and of course, uh, anything else that, that your 401k plan administrator can tell you about that will give you a better sense of who all is getting a whack at you along the way? You want to minimize as many of those as you can. Number seven, most U.S. companies are global. Uh, what percent international do you have? Referring to my portfolio. And uh, it's true. U.S. companies, large companies, uh, may do half their business internationally. And guess what? International large companies may be doing half of their business internationally for them. Uh, what you don't get, typically, uh, when you look at investing globally just through U.S. companies, what you don't get is exposure to small cap, rarely. You don't get exposure to uh, a lot of value, and so you really can't get the, 
um, the exposure to the international markets that are extra productive unless you actually take a position in those asset classes in the form of an international fund. Now, you do that through a U.S. market, but you end up not only in the, let's say, a small cap international fund, uh, but you get currency diversification uh, by owning uh, those funds where they do not hedge currency uh, so that that will that will actually reduce your overall volatility uh, with that currency diversification. In my case, I'm about 50% international and 50% uh, U.S. in the primary holdings of the international uh, in the equities part of my portfolio. But uh, I really couldn't tell you how much of the international companies I own how much business they do in the U.S., and I really couldn't pin down how much of the business in the thousands of companies I own in the U.S., all through index funds, uh, have operations or income uh, from the international markets. Uh, Number eight. Uh, This is about um, active versus indexes. And the comment starts, according to research, Only 15% of managed funds exceed the average long-term S&P 500 returns. Why not buy mostly S&P 500 index funds or ETFs? Couldn't it be just that simple? Yes, it could be that simple. I want you to be uh, aware, uh, at the same time as we know that the S&P 500 has very fine returns, We also know that other classes like large cap value and small cap value and REITs and emerging markets and international markets have better returns. But let's talk about the odds of the actively managed funds, which is what they're talking about here. What are the odds that you will invest in an actively managed fund and it will beat its comparable index? So there is... Twice a year, uh, there's a report put out by uh, Standard & Poor's. It's called the it's one report that I have here in my hand. is called the SPIVA, S-P-I-V as in Victor, A, U.S. scorecard. And what it shows in one, three, five, and 10-year periods is what percentage of funds beat the particular index. So we would expect, if we looked at one year, that probably percentage-wise, many more would beat the index than if we went out 10 years. And it turns out that's true. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Don't want to bore you, but uh, I find this interesting that in 2015, if you look at that one year, uh, the S&P 500 beat 66% of the actively managed funds in that category. If you looked at purely the growth part of the portfolio in the S&P 500, uh, only, uh, let's see, it looks like 51% of the actively managed funds outperformed uh, the S&P 500 growth index. Uh, If we looked at 
small cap value about 53%. 53% of small cap value actively managed funds beat the small cap value index. Now, that's one year. So, no great shakes one year at a time. But by the time we even just get out to three years, the S&P 500, now it's 76% underperform. Uh, the growth, it's now 76% underperform. The small cap value, it's 79% underperform. And by the time we get out to 10 years, it turns out that 83% of the actively managed funds underperform the index. In the case of the S&P 500 growth, it's 93% underperform the index. And the small cap value, uh, it is uh, 89%. So you might find it interesting to, uh, uh, to, to, to check out the Spiever report and see for yourself that the longer you hold these investments, the higher the probability with actively managed funds that you will underperform. It is also interesting to note, uh, they'll give you the percentage of funds that actually survive the 10 years. And what you find, for example, if you look at uh, the funds that are there today, in the S&P 500 category, only 11% of them were closed or merged away. Uh, in the case of the large cap growth, uh, about 14% were closed or merged away. So what happens is, because they get rid of the bad ones, the average of the rest of them becomes higher than it would be if you included the actively managed funds that failed. So these returns can be very misleading. Number nine, can I explain more about growth and value? And uh, why do you want a mix? Well, first of all, growth companies are generally companies that are in, in industries that are perceived to have good future growth. And they tend to be companies that are profitable and growing and have good management and have access to good of, of low-cost capital. To be in a growth company means you are in a higher-quality company, not only in terms of the inner workings of that company, but the view of its future. Now, what sometimes is a bit confusing to people because it's so kind of counterproductive or counterintuitive at first is that value is kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, not in the hot dog, the great growth industries typically. May even have some challenges with uh, management, may not be able to get the, the lower cost uh, uh, to borrow money, to grow, etc. 
there's some reason that the company or the industry is struggling. And those companies tend to be priced lower. Uh, They also, by the way, tend to be more risky. Now, when we know something is more risky, it does make sense, doesn't it, that you should expect a better rate of return out of something that is more risky than something that is less risky, and that's the way it works. Stocks do better than bonds. Small companies do better than large companies. Value companies do better than growth companies. Even though those growth companies have a great future, that future is built into the price of that stock. They will tend to sell at much higher price-to-earnings ratios. And beware the, the, the large growth popular company that stumbles. Because when that's a surprise and their business starts to stumble, either sales go down or profits go down, you can see a huge one-day correction. Sometimes as much as 25% of the value of the company can be lost in one day because it went from people thinking it's a growth company to realizing it's got some serious problems. Now, why, if the value companies make more, Why wouldn't you be all in value? And as some of you may have seen, I wrote a couple of articles recently about the idea for young people of building an all-value portfolio. Not because I want you to be in in, in industries or companies that that don't have great growth, but because all the evidence points in a broadly diversified portfolio that for taking the moderate amount of additional risk holding thousands of companies, not one, that there is a substantial premium. And at least looking backwards, has certainly been worth that additional risk. But you see, there's a point in time, I'm 73, I don't want to be all value. Value could underperform for the next 10 years. It may be the higher quality companies will do better. In fact, it was interesting when, when we had the, 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 the response to the election of Trump. Uh, we got a big spurt in the Dow Jones. Big companies, big, big companies. And other asset classes didn't do as well in that first week. In fact, I I think the Dow Jones made almost twice as much as the S&P 500. So if the going gets tough, I think that I want some of those really well-financed, well-managed companies in my portfolio. And there are periods like the late 90s. If all you had was value in your portfolio, it would have been terrible because your friends would have been getting rich in the S&P 500 or technology. Now, if you'd held on, the value companies and the small companies came roaring back in the decade following that huge rise in growth. So for the more conservative investor, you would want, I think, a mix of large and small value and growth. Number 10. Actually, they didn't, well, here's what they said, cyber attack. Now, remember, this was before the uh, election, 
And remember, there were articles about the possibility of a cyber attack. But cyber attack, election undecided, uh, whether it was undecided uh, because whatever, for whatever reason it was undecided, but that it was undecided and therefore we would have the trauma. How would the market, what happens to the market um, is this question. Well, first of all, why would you ask me? Why would you ask uh, anybody a question that they can't know the answer? Would it matter uh, if I perceived, took the question and, and, and answered it through the eyes of whoever the opposition might be? If I'm a Democrat, how do I think about the answer to that question versus a Republican? How would they answer that question? Seeing there are probably uh, the day that uh, Trump got elected, or the night that he got elected, there were people who must have been very happy at the same time as there were people who were very sad. And whatever answer they would give you to this question would be through their bias, through their conflicts of interest sometimes. My view, and I just wrote an article about this, is I totally ignore all of these kinds of things. And people say, well, how can you totally ignore things that could be catastrophic? Well, the answer is because there are dozens and dozens of reasons the market could go down 30 to 50%. Remember, once every 3.4 years for the last, since 1929, the market goes down an average of about 35%. This would just be one more reason the market might go down. And then you always have this decision to make. We saw what a lot of people did early the day after Trump was elected. The market first took an $800 or 800-point decline before it ended up for the day significantly. So a lot of people panicked and sold. Other people, whoever they sold to, they were buying and at the end of the day, we look back and everything seems to make so much sense. On the other hand, when we try to see into the future, it is so unbelievably foggy. So the answer is, of course, the answer is that we stay diversified, including enough fixed income to address the risk tolerance, whatever the reason will be that the market will go down. And by the way, when I say the answer is, that is simply my answer. That's not the answer. It is what I believe in, unless, of course, you are, uh, what, what you're doing is um, market timing, in which case you follow the dictates of your market timing system. Number 11. My wife follows your philosophy has been for years. By the way, she came up uh, after the presentation and said that she was very comfortable uh, and had done well. So that made me feel good. I, and then in parens, the husband, use a broker and invest in individual stocks regularly. 
How can we compromise? Or can we? Okay. Um, first of all, I happened to talk to this couple after my presentation. And he, he's not investing in individual stocks because he thinks he's going to do better than his wife. Although he would love to, I know that from the look at his eye, he's competitive. But he's doing it for fun. Now, I'm not their advisor, so I don't know if his fun is in any way endangering their financial future. And looking into her eyes, I would even say that uh, she may have a little speculative uh, glint in, <laughs> in her thinking as well. But sometimes I think if one person, let's say, is very aggressive and you feel they're too aggressive, one thing that you might consider doing is making your portfolio a little less aggressive. Maybe if on your own you would be 70% in equity and 30% in fixed income, but your spouse is pedal to the metal and 100% equity and individual stocks, well, you just might want to drop your asset allocation down to a 50-50 to offset the high uh, aggressiveness. Now, he says, how can we compromise? Could they compromise? Well, what would he have to do to compromise? I will tell you one thing he could do is he could do his, uh, let's call it speculation, with less money and uh, maybe tone down the overall aggressiveness of his portfolio. Or maybe what they could do to reach a compromise is to find an advisor who can really walk through their situation and tell them from a professional viewpoint whether they should be taking the risk that the husband may be taking that could be that could be too high. I don't know the particulars, but I thought the story was kind of fun. Enjoyed meeting them. And that was number, did I call that number 11? You know what? I think I should have called that. No, that's number 11. Uh, number 12, um, there are so many index funds which are really appealing. That's the question. Well, I'll tell you, the ones that are really appealing to me are the ones that go up. Now, if I can't know what that's going to be, the ones that are really appealing to me are the ones that over time in the past have really gone up. But then when I look at the those asset classes where the stocks as a group have really gone up and made a lot of money over a long period of time, never focused, focused on the short term, the ones that really appeal to me are the ones that have the lower expenses and the broader diversification. And even to take it a step further, if I like some small cap value, as I talked earlier on the tape here, what I, what I would like is I'd like to have a small cap value that, that exposes me to the best producing part of the small cap value asset class. Now, I'm doing my best 
at paulmerriman.com to give you recommendations at Vanguard and, and we know both with mutual funds and ETFs and other places as well. Um, if I knew which asset classes were going to for sure be the winners, my recommendation would be easy. But we all know the reality. Paul Merriman doesn't know. And then I had one more question here. Ah, yes, of course, of course. The what do I see with a Trump presidency? I just wrote an article that talked about, looking backward, um, what happened uh, to the market. Um, first of all, based on was there any indication of what the four years would look like by what happened in the one week after they get elected. And it turns out you really can't tell much. I do know, I do know my anecdotal evidence was that when Clinton was elected, that for many people that was the end of having any money in the stock market because there was absolutely no trust. And a person that many people could absolutely not trust and trust, interestingly enough, has been such a big deal in this particular election. I mean, theoretically, we have two had two candidates that had the the the, the worst unfavorable um, ratings in, in history. And yet, many of you, if you think back, think about how people felt about Bill Clinton. And I think that certainly there are a lot of people who uh, I mean, we're, now we're keeping track of lies. And, and so if somebody lies a lot, then we tend not to, to, to trust them. So all I know is that in 1992, when Bill Clinton got elected, I spent a lot of time convincing, trying to convince people, don't jump, stay invested. There is so little you can really tell. I mean, we could, we could make some judgments. Will they actually spend a trillion dollars on the infrastructure? Will they really find a way to get a trillion dollars back here from overseas? Uh, will they really? find a way to lower the tax brackets? In which case, if part of these things are done, you can see why there are people who are willing to put money in there. I mean, we end, may end up with massive public debt, but good roads and bridges. And I'm not, I'm not taking sides here because, I mean, the bottom line is nobody knows how it will come out. I do know this. That when I was begging John in 1992 to stay the course, and yes, the first week the market was up 0.4%, peanuts compared to the response to Trump being elected. But for the next four years, the market was up 86.7%, not counting dividends. And in 1996, 
That first week was up 3.6%, still way behind the Dow Jones this year in response to the Trump election. But at the end of four years, the market was up 79.6%, not counting dividends. So we, most of us love to pontificate. And pretend that we know what the future will look like and that we'll know what that we know what Donald Trump will do next. I suspect we've never had a politician that we know less about what's gonna happen next, which is appears to be part of the charm of Donald Trump to to a lot of America. So the answer from my viewpoint is and, and I speak on behalf of myself and my wife and people who have the same risk tolerance that I do, which is not very much, I got 50% in short to intermediate term U.S. government bonds. If the market tanks, those things have traditionally held up just fine. The other 50% is half large, half small, half value, well, more than half value, less than half growth. Half U.S., half international, slice of REITs, slice of emerging markets, thousands and thousands and thousands of companies. And I don't, when I say I don't care, I am not going to let who the president or vice president or any of that is, that has nothing to do with the asset allocation that I have in my account. And I know a lot of investors say, are you crazy, Paul? Don't you understand that? And then they go on to tell me how the future's going to be. And what I trust is that I don't trust the individual's view of the future. I do trust that however untrustworthy the politicians might be, uh, that capitalism is likely to survive. I was not surprised the least bit that Trump got elected. Uh, I knew. I knew what the odds were. And I knew it so deep in my gut because if I looked at the New York Times prediction, they would say, for example that the odds of Trump winning were equivalent to the odds of a professional field goal kicker missing a uh, 39-yard field goal attempt. And then I'd watch a Seahawk game. And not only did our our field goal kicker miss a, a 29, I think it was, he also missed a point after. And it is kind of sobering when you think about that, that even though uh, they may say that the odds of a particular thing happening are very, very high, just imagine you have a, a, a die, and that die has three numbers on it, and you're going to roll that die... And there's a one-third probability that one of those three numbers will come up. 
That's what we were talking about in this election. And yet, just like I've seen at the craps table, where somebody's got the dice and they're they're rocking them back and forth in their hands, and then they throw them out on the table and they call for the number. Or baby needs a new pair of shoes. Something, something that implies that they kind of have a feeling what's going to happen. And sometimes just before somebody's ready to roll, somebody quickly put out a bet because they, they smell it, they feel it. They're going to they're gonna win if they put that money right there, right now. And of course, we don't know. And most of us don't even understand probabilities very well. But um, it, was, it was, in a sense, no surprise because actually uh, one out of three, that's pretty good odds uh, at, at, uh, at, at most things in life. All right, well, that's a lot for one. I hope this helps in some way, somewhere in there. It will uh, make you think about the decisions you're making Thank you always uh, for listening. And those people on Bainbridge who are listening to this, don't you forget now, in the spring, I'm going to be having another workshop where I'm going to focus purely on retirement, the, just the pre-retirement, just a couple years, let's say with the last five years of working, and then on into retirement. And uh, I think if you're in that mode in your life, either just pre or in retirement, that you'll join me again at the Bainbridge Island Museum, Art Museum, and, uh, and we'll have some fun again. Thanks for listening. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.